You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Good evening, everyone, and welcome, everybody, to tonight's program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, my name is Mohamed Fahmy, and I'm the co-regional managing director of First Republic San Francisco Region. Um, we're pleased to support tonight's program. First Republic has a longstanding commitment to the Commonwealth Club, and we really support this organization for the great work it does. Um, for tonight, as many of you know, San Francisco is a city of innovation, and we constantly make national headlines with companies going public or being acquired or liquidity events being created. Uh, and through many of these changes, little is being discussed to equip the employees of the companies on what the major cultural shifts or shifts that are going to happen once a liquidity event happens or um, the company gets acquired. We wanted to address these shifts and bring together a panel of experts to share their insights tonight. Uh, please welcome tonight's panelist, Lise Beyer, founder and partner, Class 5 Group, Tracy Coate, Chief People's Officer at Genesis, David Rosenthal, General Partner at Wave Capital and host of the Acquired Podcast, Dan Springer, CEO and founder of DocuSign. We're excited to have them here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming them to the Commonwealth Club. Oh, Lord. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, well, welcome, everyone. Thank you, uh, everyone, for coming. This is a great, uh, great turnout. Um, so I'm David Rosenthal. Uh, as Mohammed said, I'm a venture capitalist at Wave Capital here in San Francisco, um, which is a early stage VC firm that I started two years ago with two partners who are early employees at Airbnb. Uh, but more importantly, I'm the co-host of the Acquired Podcast as my hobby on the side. So uh, you uh, probably are more interested in hearing my perspective from that area tonight. Um, and uh, that brings us to the topic of life after liquidity. Um, so uh, Tracy, Dan, and, and Lise, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so just to set the stage, uh, I'm gonna, if you've ever listened to Acquired, you know that I like to be very uh, verbose and go back in history to kind of set the stage for, for each episode. Um, so so kind of to do that briefly here, um, it might be sort of tough to remember sitting here in September 2019, uh, but not too long ago, the dominant trend in Silicon Valley was stay private longer, uh, coined by famed venture capitalist Bill Gurley. Uh, and uh, most high growth tech companies were choosing not to go public after, you know, five, seven, even 10 years of high growth as they ordinarily would have in previous eras, and instead taking hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in private capital as new unicorn companies from um, often new entrants into the venture funding market. Um, and I was thinking about this, and I remembered um, when I was in business school, I got to meet uh, the late Dave Goldberg at an event uh, who was at the time CEO of, of SurveyMonkey. And um, he had publicly stated that he was never going to take SurveyMonkey public. He was going to keep it as a private company forever. And I sort of asked him, uh, I was a venture capitalist um, before business school, and I was planning to go back into the industry uh, afterwards. And so I sort of knew how you know, the math of venture worked. And I was like, are you, are you sure? Like, how long are you going to stay private? And I thought, you know, well, we'll see how long that lasts. And it turned out it lasted a really long time. SurveyMonkey did go public last year uh, in 2018, almost 20 years after the company was founded. And we can talk about this with Dan a little bit. Uh, not quite as long, but almost yeah. as long. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, what's happened and what's enabled that, you have all this capital that's flooded into the private ecosystem, uh, the private tech company ecosystem, best exemplified by, by SoftBank and their vision fund, um, which, you know, I think gets, gets lost in all the news about SoftBank, but it is actually the largest fund of any type in the world, $93 billion dedicated to investing in private capital. So bigger than any private equity fund, any real estate fund, any other asset class out there in the world. Um, and that's fueled all of this that is now coming to an end because no trend lasts forever. And so here we are now. And uh, so far this year, Lyft, Uber, Pinterest, uh, Slack, Zoom, 
last year, um, Spotify, Dropbox, and of course DocuSign have all gone public. Many more companies have lined up to go public. Uh, Airbnb maybe at some point soon here. Um, and that's kind of changed things because Silicon Valley has been architected uh, for these private companies over the last few years from management teams to employees to investors. Um, and now here we are with all of this liquidity and the question is, well, what does life look like after it? So that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, I thought uh, I'm going to open up the panel to uh, discussions in a minute, but but to start, I thought I might start with each of our panelists individually and ask them kind of a few questions about their perspective. Uh, and then also, as mentioned on the comment cards, please, uh, please write down your questions and we'll make sure we have plenty of time for them at the end. Um, so I want to start with Tracy. Um, so you're the chief people officer at Genesis. Unlike a lot of these other companies out there, you guys have taken a bit of a different path to liquidity um, <laughs> that I want to talk about. You've done two separate transactions with private equity firms, uh, first in 2012 with um, Premira and TCV, and then in 2016 with Hellman and Friedman, uh, locally here in San Francisco. Um, uh, how has kind of that been for you all versus like, I'm sure you could have gone public and tapped the public markets. Um, how do, how has that experience been? So I think there's a, people don't think about private equity transactions as being liquidity events. Really. People don't know about that. Um, IPOs are what gets all the press and it's all the excitement, but private equity is, a, it's a different kind of, um, it's a different kind of transaction, but it's still a transaction. So Genesis, the company I currently work for, in 2012, um, spun out from Alcatel-Lucent, and they were bought by Premira, a European-based private equity firm. And private equity is similar to a venture capital firm, although I think they tend to invest for a little longer and uh, really pick their bets. And uh, in 2016, we had a liquidity event. We could have gone public, decided to uh, instead have a transaction to another private equity firm. So Premira sold half their stake to Hellman and Friedman, and what that resulted in was a, was a liquidity event for people who held stock in the company, much like an IPO. And so were, uh, were employees and, and management able to sell into that transaction as well? So in private equity, um, it works a little bit differently. So you hold your stock options to anybody who has them, which isn't always everyone. Um, you hold them until there is an event. And so when there's an event, then whatever you have, you can cash in on it. It tends to not be as lucrative um, in, in some instances as going public. and in other instances, it can actually be more lucrative. It just depends. Yeah. Um, what, uh, so, so let's talk about your, your chief people officer from a kind of recruiting and retention standpoint, when liquidity events happened with, happen with, um, privately financed companies, you can obviously potentially get liquid liquidity, but you're competing in the talent market with your peer companies, many of which like DocuSign who are public and are able to say to employees, Hey, we're going to have regular selling windows, uh, for your liquid public stock. How do you, what's your answer to that about how you compete with the, in that market with for employees? Well, I'm not going to lie. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little hard to compete with because it's much easier to understand. It's a lot sexier. I'm sorry, DocuSign. It's sexy. Really. <laughs> um, so you have to explain a private equity system, uh, to people. And one of the things that we also do, is we recruit oh, maybe a slightly different pool of talent. We cast a wider net. We don't just focus on um, talent that's in one location, the Bay Area. We, we focus on talent all over the world. We have employees in 58 countries. Uh, so we have a really uh, nice opportunity to be able to recruit wherever we find the best talent. And we have a strong virtual workforce strategy as well. So that also gives us an opportunity and, and, and another way to look at what's appealing to employees. It's money's great, but sometimes you want people who are here for the cause, not just for the money. And so we try to create an, an employee experience that is really worth having. Uh, so people want to be there. Yeah. Um, makes sense. Um, all right, Dan, I want to move, um, to you. So this isn't your first rodeo, uh, taking a company public last year. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, what made you want to sign up and do it again? Your first company responses, you took com uh, public in 2014, is there? Or? Uh, we sold in 2013 to Oracle. We went public in 2011. But actually, um, not in any of the, Google doesn't go back this far, but Lisa and I were involved in the company 
in 1999 that went public, if you can believe. For you, some of you probably weren't alive yet. We were both 12. <laughs> we were 12. <laughs> yeah. uh, called Next Card. So this is actually the third time uh, that I've done that. What, uh, are you, what made you want to come back and do it again? <laughs> I mean, actually, the IPO process is kind of a fun process. Uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement, as you said. It's sort of people put a lot of attention on it, and it is. It does feel a little bit sexy. Um, but I think for me, the experience is really now. I've done it. You know, first one, it's about yourself. Second time you're doing it, you start to realize that it's really about other people more than it is about you because you've had that experience. And it's really fun to watch other people go through the process. And people do get very excited. Um, and it also creates good career growth opportunities. So that's another part that you just really get excited about taking people through it. And I would also say that when you do it and you've done it before, you do get to feel like the sage expert a little <laughs> bit um, and maybe become a little professorial and tell people, this is what you should do. Um, an example of that is uh, when we got ready to go public uh, at, at DocuSign, I told people, you know, the temptation is you go public and you start looking at the stock price every day. So I made a commitment that I only look at the stock price after it closes once a week on Friday. And it's hard. And to be fair, a lot of times people come and tell me what happened in the stock market. <laughs> so you do get, you know, bankers come by and tell you what happened on Tuesday. But, uh, but in general, I won't look myself except for uh, on Fridays. And so you have an opportunity to try to show people, you know, a little bit of maybe the better way or, or a more thoughtful way. So that's fun about it, too. Sounds like you might have a, a third career working with uh, Lisa yes. in the future. <laughs> but, um, so when you joined DocuSign in 2017, it was only a little over a year until you went public. So I imagine preparations either were already underway or were moving <clears throat> very quickly from the time you joined. How did you get, you know, the public these days, it used to be in the good old days that uh, companies would file to go public with the SEC for their first draft, and then that would be public, and it would be a long process that would play out. Now with confidential filing, yeah. S1 only becomes public only a few months before the company actually does the IPO, but the work is many, many months leading up to that. Did, did you start right away? Uh, we didn't start right away. There were a few things we needed to resolve with the business. As I like to say, uh, DocuSign, when I joined, was a great company masquerade as a good company, uh, and there were some things we were doing sort of self-inflicted uh, that we needed to sort of fix and clean up before I felt we'd be ready uh, for the sort of public scrutiny. And it is a different scrutiny with, you know, one of the great things about private equity as a model, um, you have more understanding uh, owners, and they're not looking at press releases every day, and they can sometimes be demanding, but they also usually can think a little more about the long term. When you're public, you do get on that quarterly cycle, and you really need to deliver every quarter. Um, there's good to that, but there's also sometimes challenges if things change in your business. So I really wanted people to be ready. So we spent, uh, after about three or four months after I joined, we started the process. It was just under a year to say, let's start acting like a public company. Let's start doing quarterly releases ourselves, even though we didn't publish them to anyone else, uh, and just sort of practice that process. So we did that for three more quarters. Uh, and after two quarters, about six months before we actually went public, we did our um, confidential filing. Uh, and then about three months after that, the beginning of the year, was when we did our first sort of public, public filing. filing. Although not very many things are private in Silicon Valley. So um, <laughs> after our confidential <clears throat> filing, it's amazing how many people came up to me. Hey, congratulations. I, that's really great. You guys, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't about. know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, uh, well, that's, that's a good rumors. Into my, into my, uh, my, my, my last kind of individual question for you. So... DocuSign was founded in 2003, uh, actually up in Seattle, uh, not in uh, not in San Francisco. Um, <clears throat> what uh, in those first months when you were joining, you know, what did you have to do culturally for the company to take it from a 15 year old private software company to be ready to be a high growth? You know, we can, we'll talk in a bit about the uh, current market for uh, valuation market for public SaaS yeah. companies. But yeah. uh, being in that league, what, how did you approach that? Well, so, so the company was founded by a gentleman named Tom Gonzer in Seattle. And Seattle is still our largest office. Our headquarters is here, but we've got a couple hundred more people in Seattle than here. And I grew up in Seattle, so it's great. Uh -huh. So I get to go home and see my mom a lot now that uh, I'm at DocuSign. Um, so it's a, um, it, the culture at DocuSign was a lot of it was fantastic. And the reason it was fantastic, and going back to your employer brand uh, issues, is people like working at DocuSign because our customers love us. Um, and we were talking backstage about this concept. When you meet someone and you say you work at DocuSign, people say, I love DocuSign. I bought my house there. Or I, you've made my life a lot easier at work. Um, and I contrast that with my life at Responses, where we were an email marketing company. You meet people and they say, oh, you're the spammers. <laughs> Permission-based email marketing is what we prefer to say. But <laughs> I guess you could. You know. 
So, uh, so it's a lot nicer when people say, I love DocuSign. So our employees are really happy. We have very low attrition rates, about half of the industry norm, in, in, even though most of our employees are in Seattle and San Francisco, which are two very competitive marketplaces, as, as you know, um, and people like being here. So that standpoint, the foundation was really strong. There were a couple cultural things that I felt we needed to do uh, really just to make it a better place, but not really to make it a better place to be public. And as I like to say to people is, after we go public, the only difference I really want to feel is that some information that I used to be totally transparent about, I can't be transparent until after our earnings calls. So as I do an all-company quarterly meeting, and now I do it right after the earnings. We had earnings last week, and this week I had the, the all-hands. And then I share all the same information. It's just that we have to wait uh, till the end of the quarter. That was my goal, to not have anything else change. Um, all right, so Lisa, I, I want to move over to you. Um, you've been doing your work for a long time. You helped Google go public uh, back in a, in a previous era um, What uh, and worked with the legendary Frank Quattrone uh, as well. Um, from your perspective, I gave my little spiel to, to kick this off, but why? what happened that put Silicon Valley in this stay private longer mindset for so long? It was regulatory. It was the Jobs Act. Um, which was pitched, I mean, there are many things that contribute, but the biggest piece was the Jobs Act. Um, prior to the passage of that act in 2012, when a company had 500 shareholders, and that included option holders who had exercised, it had to publicly file its financial information. The this thinking, is what happened to Facebook, right? It's what happened to Google, it's what happened to Facebook. The thinking was, if you've got 500 shareholders, maybe you have an obligation to tell them what's going on in the company. And so as companies like Google and Facebook approached 500 people and did all kinds of, of uh, multiple class structures and things to try to stall, but anyway, as they approached um, the point where they were going to have to publicly file their information, they said, well, look, we're going to have to put those numbers out there. We may as well take advantage of it and go public. And it was actually, in my opinion, a really good thing because companies tend to grow on a curve like this. And prior to the Jobs Act, companies generalization here, there are certainly exceptions, but they would go public here on the growth curve, right? Because there was still a lot of room to go. Along comes the Jobs Act, which took away the 500 shareholder rule. And it was, in my opinion, a gift from the venture capital community to the venture capital community. And it said... Certainly in terms of management fees. <laughs> well, just in terms of they could hang on longer. They didn't yeah. have to share these rapidly growing companies with the public. And so they did hang on longer. And there's no question it is easier to operate as a private company than it is to be a public company. Now, certainly there are companies like Zenefits and Theranos that, to use extreme examples, that might have benefited from maybe some of the governance structural <laughs> items that come along with being public. But I can think of one or two other examples. There are but, many yeah. others. Yes, maybe we'll get to some of them later <laughs> in this conversation. But um, anyway, so that was the biggest thing that changed is suddenly huge amounts of money could come in while companies were still so private. Still private. Um, and so there was another big difference between Google and Facebook and a lot of the IPOs we're seeing now. And this leads to my next question, which is they were profitable when they went public, <laughs> very profitable. Um, that is not the case with a lot of uh, companies going public today. Um, and and I, in my opinion, that's one of the reasons that we've led to the, has led to the kind of very different receptions for the Zooms, the Slacks, the SaaS companies, the DocuSigns versus the Ubers and the Lyfts and the, um, some of these more consumer businesses. Uh, how, how do you see the market for <laughs> investors investing into this new era of IPOs? You know, investing as an institutional investor, which I did for a long time, it's a continuum. How much risk am I willing to take versus how much reward do I think I can get? And, and depending on what's happening in the economy writ large, people skew one way or the other. So if you remember back in 2000, companies went public with like a slideshow, two guys and a dog. I mean, <laughs> Not even revenue, right? No, Eyeballs. Right, yeah, pre-revenue, exactly. So companies going public before they were profitable isn't anything new. And we just swing back and forth as to whether we're willing to mm. uh, be all excited about them because look what's going to happen. Or Now, we've got, as you mentioned, Uber. We've got companies, or I'll just throw it out there, we work, that have losses that are hard to fathom <laughs> in terms of just scale. And so we are certainly seeing bigger losses now than we had seen in the past. But um, again, investors are always back and forth between what's more important to me, aversion, risk aversion, or oh, but look how much I might make. <laughs> well, what's, uh, what's old is new again. Well, maybe um, 
we can talk about some of uh, those companies more uh, with the whole panel. But um, I want to talk, my last question for you about direct listings. Uh, Spotify did it, Slack did it. Um, uh, you know, Bill Gurley's newest campaign, uh, instead of stay private longer or, or decrying stay private longer is companies and management teams are leaving money on the table with IPOs. Why not do direct listings if you don't need the capital? And, and the benefits of direct listings are, are twofold. One, you're directly selling shares. So there's not, you're not issuing new stock. You're not diluting existing shareholders. Um, two, uh, and this may potentially be self-interested on Bill's part, uh, the shares that are created for the float come from existing shareholders. So if you're an investor in the company or if you're an employee or the management team, you can sell directly into the IPO instead of a lockup. What's your take on, on this? You know, direct listings surely are the shiny new object. And they're right for some companies and not right for others. The biggest difference is that the company itself cannot raise any money. Yep. Right? A, a direct listing, that's technically not completely true, but for all intents and purposes. Um, so direct listings right now are, um, hey, people who currently own the stock, particularly venture capital firms or others who are early investors, you're just going to toss that sucker out there on a given morning and let's see where it <laughs> trades. I'm being a little facetious, but not terribly. Um, the venture guys love it because, again, in combination with the Jobs Act, one, they could hang on longer. But two, they still had this pesky problem of they had to hang on generally 180 days after the IPO. Yeah. Not anymore. Not with a direct listing. You sell it and you can get out of Dodge as fast as you want, which at some level gives some folks incentive to hang on right until this happens to the growth curve yep. and then check out. Now, again, that's a generalization. But so I think we might see some others. I think there are advantages for some companies. The fees are a little less. In all of the incredible enthusiasm right now about direct listings, no one's paying attention to the fact that the two companies that have done it are both trading well below the S&P, <laughs> well below the NASDAQ, and well below the price where they went public. Price, yeah. So they didn't leave a lot of money on the table, But and this actually is more for you guys. There's the issue of what happens when your employees on, you know... I don't know, July 15th, think that their shares are worth 50 bucks a share. And then in September, they're only worth $25 a share. You've got a morale problem. Yeah. So <laughs> they, uh, direct listings are good for some and not others. They are certainly not a panacea. Yeah. We don't, so you don't think we're going to see everybody move? I think everybody's talking about them. Yeah. But nobody's looking at what the stocks that have done it have done. <laughs> well, so, uh, so now I want to open it up to, uh, to Tracy and to Dan. If you, well, Tracy, going forward in the future, if if you and your private equity backers were to consider the public markets at some point in time, would you? Do you think a direct listing would make your job and uh, easier or or harder? Kind of to Lisa's point here. Well, listen to what she just said. I'm not sure it's such a great idea. <laughs> so <clears throat> that would probably not be up to me to decide, right? I mean, and the investors would have to make a decision about that. I think there's obviously some flexibility in there, that, which is very, really interesting. Um, I don't think it's something people kind of down at the lower levels in an organization are thinking about. People just think IPO, and that's so exciting. Um, so it is going to be interesting to see where that goes in the future, particularly as we head into this, um, the elections and like an, an uncertain season for IPOs and other kinds of transactions. Like, is that going to be an answer for people? Dan, if you could go back. Well, I, I should ask the question, literally, did you consider a direct listing uh, or was it IPO all the way for you all? We never considered a direct listing. I did a little bit at responses because we fit the model that, uh, you know, that least described of we didn't need to raise any money. We didn't want to dilute ourselves very much. So we actually went out with a very small sale, which is actually not always the best thing because you get what's called a small float. And then your stock can be a little bit more volatile because there just aren't that many shares. So we didn't want to sell them. But the, the big reason I'm not a fan, and I'm, again, there are certain situations where I absolutely think it could be appropriate. But for most companies, I do think there is some diligence. Investment bankers provide just a tiny bit of value for the public around the diligence that they do uh, that you just don't really have to do. And you have to pay them a significant fee for that, you, you, one would argue, in terms of that spread. Uh, but the second piece is that I don't think it's a bad thing to have happy shareholders. And so if you get this pop, everyone's sort of against that there's going to be some pop in your IPO. Um, if I wake up six months later and a year later and everything didn't go perfectly, as we've seen for some companies, um, it's not the worst thing to have shareholders say, actually, I got in down here. And if you only sm sell a small part then you're not, the pop isn't so bad because it's only a small piece of the shares that you sold that people make a little extra money. So I try to take a longer-term perspective, and I love happy shareholders. 
And I'd, I'm, I'm okay if they get uh, a little bit of that pot. When we went public, we listed at $29 a share, uh, and then the, the trades ended in the high 30s, mid to high 30s. And I looked at it and I said, I'm happy. And my employees were super happy because they said we had a successful IPO and the fact that the stock went up. And, you know, I don't know, we're 60 bucks a share, uh, last, 56 last Friday. I don't know what it is today. I only look on Fridays. Okay, I call that a success. Right. Yeah. But it was <laughs> tomorrow. I'll find out. Yeah. Someone just said 62. That's even better than 56. All right. Uh, you only look so on Fridays. So. I'll find out tomorrow. I wish yeah. someone just yelled it out. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but I can't. I mean, come on. Only someone, what can I do? <laughs> but um, I do think that's, that's how we look at it. So, Lisa, there was, you were part of um, one of the most a famous, perhaps the most famous alternative uh, listing vehicle, which was uh, Google itself with the, uh, was it a d Dutch auction or a reverse Dutch auction? That was a Dutch auction. Dutch auction. Or technically a dirty Dutch auction. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, so you were actually part of Google as this was happening. Like how did, you know, this was an era where, well, the first direct listing actually, I believe if I'm remembering my history correctly, was Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Uh, I think back in like the sixties or seventies. Uh, they pioneered the actual structure, but it obviously has fallen out of favor for a long time since then. Uh, Google was the first real, like, big-time alternative structure IPO. Uh, in the U.S. In the U.S., yeah. How, how did you all think about doing that? The founders said, we're going to do something different, and we all <laughs> smiled and nodded and said, okay. Um, uh, the founders were concerned about two things. Uh, one was too big a pop, because when you have a company like Google or Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook or Airbnb, or you get a lot of people investing who don't usually invest in the stock market. And sometimes, whereas professional investors by and large say, hey, look, I'm in at 20, but I'm not paying 28. Sometimes folks who aren't quite as sophisticated on the investor front just say, buy me shares. And so you get a stock that does this. And, and so we were certainly uh, trying to avoid that a little bit. Um, but the other thing was the founders didn't like the fact that the banks had the reputation of allocating shares to their favorite accounts. So they took that control away from the banks. Sort of the quick primer is, in a traditional IPO, the company and the banks, to some extent, will control both who gets the shares and what the price is. With an auction, you can't control who gets the shares because it's anybody who was going to hit that price is going to get shares, but you get to control what that price is. And with a direct listing, you don't control the price and you don't control who yeah. owns it is in a very generalized way. Yeah. Um, and the was part of uh, the Dutch auction is, is actually also how Google's ad business operates, right? Was that part of the thinking? Absolutely. Of... <laughs> Google argued that we're one of the biggest auction houses in the world. They did, I don't know what the number was at the time, but millions of auctions every day. If it was good enough to run our business, why wasn't it good enough to sell the stock? And the second thing was, and this goes to Sergey and Larry, they felt really strongly that the shares should go to the individuals who used Google as much as they should go to big institutions, ignoring the fact that the big institutions are actually the aggregated funds of lots of individuals, but we won't go there. Um, but anyway, they wanted to make sure that everybody had an equal, anyone who was willing to yeah. pay the price had an equal shot equal at getting shares. Yep. And so when I said dirty Dutch auction, that just meant when you do an auction, you say we're selling 100 shares. At what price can we sell 100 shares? That would be a pure Dutch auction. We had the ability to drop the price below where supply exactly equaled demand, as long as everybody, whether it was Fidelity or, you know, old McDonald, um, would get the same percentage shares that they looked for, as long as they met the price, more than you wanted to know. And that, uh, I would presume part of the thinking on that was that so you could get the pop, even though you were optimizing for... Uh, it was to make sure that, that we didn't have a gazillion individuals going, I'll pay $800 a share. Yeah. We wanted to make sure that we could keep the price at a level where the big professional investors Women. were also going to be shareholders. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. I'm going to take a, a question from the audience here because uh, I think this is a, a good one. And um, 
uh, on, on topic here, which is, um, the question is, what do you think the repercussions are of going public against, potentially against the wishes of major investors, uh, for instance, uh, as what is being discussed with, uh, with WeWork and, um, and, and SoftBank right now, or at least being reported in the press, but, but maybe as a more general question, like, and self-interested as a VC, you don't always see eye to eye as a management team and employees versus an investor base on when you want to go public and get liquidity. How did Dan, how did you manage this? Well, so it's interesting because the vast majority of the cases that I've experienced and talked to other people about, it's the other way around where a management team says, yeah. we're not, we're not sure we're ready. Do we really want to do that? And some investors say liquidity, <laughs> I think you guys should start life after liquidity right now, uh, to use the title of your, uh, session today. So, uh, usually it's the other way around, but I mean, I think this is one of the situations where you have a board, uh, different people have rights to be there because they're management. Some people have rights to be there because they were founders, some people because they invested money. And I think that's one of the challenges, uh, you know, of our structure is you have to find uh, that medium. Rarely do I see it come down to a voting discussion. Well, I have this many shares of that. You do have to get consensus and get people to go forward. Um, I think my current guess, I've only had one conversation, you know, with Adam about this from a WeWork standpoint, and this was before, so not based on any of the information that's come out with SoftBank. Um, they want to go public. Um, they want to be public. Uh, they also do need to raise billions of dollars to continue to run their business, uh, which could be done other ways. Uh, but um, I think that I think they're going to do it. And I think their investors will, in the end, support them. Um, SoftBank has a quite unusual situation in that they invested at a much higher price. And so if they do go public at a lower price, they'll have to write down their investments. And as you know, when you're a venture capitalist and you're out raising money as SoftBank, SoftBank right is. now, yeah. <laughs> it's not great to be able to say my last investment fund didn't do you know, as well as it did if I kept it at the higher valuation. So they have an understandable reason to request them not to go out if the price is going to be where the price is going to be. Um, so I think it's, you know, both perspectives are reasonable. Um, I think um, Adam has enough uh, control of that business that they'll, they will go. Oh. That's, that's my forecast. Well, you yeah. know, I think something that's interesting, if I can add to that, is I think if you took a vote, most employees would vote to go public nine times out of 10. They yeah. all want to do it. They're excited. They ask in every all-hands meeting, are we going public? When's it happening? When's it happening? And sometimes even the management team is interested in that um, with the caveat that living quarter to quarter is a little bit scary uh, sometimes. But what's interesting is the investors tend to be, you know, whoever is owning you tends to be, uh, at least in PE, a little more conservative. Right. Um, they want to make a sure bet and going public is never a sure bet. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. You can't predict that. There's no crystal ball. So I think where you see PE doing, you know, sometimes they'll take companies public, but much less often, I think, than yeah. venture capital firms, yeah. uh, which is interesting to me. They tend to sell to strategics or sell to other. They trade companies around the PE circuit a little bit. I see that, too. Um, less often than going public. And maybe that will change as the bridge between VC firms and PE firms gets smaller and smaller. Well, and that's a, that brings up an interesting point. Um, uh, maybe, maybe Lise, you could talk a little bit about, uh, I don't see this as much anymore, but if you rewind three to five years, uh, when a lot of PE firms were coming into the private company venture market, they were issuing, you know, dirty term sheets. We, you know, pure play, pure play VCs called them. And these dirty term sheets had ratchets in them where if uh, the company would did go public at a valuation, sometimes lower than the valuation of the investment, but sometimes even at multiples higher than that, then these investors would get essentially a true up of more shares to guarantee them a return. Uh, so we saw this in the Square IPO. Square actually went public, again, hard to remember now, at a lower valuation than their last private round. And so a bunch of these ratchets got triggered. Um, and then within a year, Square was performing incredibly well. The stock was up hugely, and these investors made huge returns on the public markets. Uh, Lisa, how, what was going on in the markets at that point in time? You know, sometimes, again, when people are more focused on risk, they want the VCs have all the power or the VCs or the, or the PE firms have all the power and they can put in these the last ratchets. money in has, and the, the frustrating thing about ratchets is so the, the sort of the quick story about the ratchet is 
you tell me what you want to be worth. No, I'll do it to you. You're the CEO. You tell me what you want to be worth, and I'll tell you what it'll cost you. So you want me to tell you that you're worth a million bucks? You're worth a million bucks. But if you go public and you're less than a million bucks, you're going to pay me so that it looked like I made money anyway. And what's so unfortunate about it is the people who get I'm on stage. I should yes. be polite. The people poorly treated. Poorly treated. Thank you very yes. much. People who get poorly treated are the common shareholders, the employees, yeah. because they don't get the extra shares. They don't. They get diluted, and so it's really kind of very unfair to them. But again, the VCs and the private equity firms. Sometimes it's their own money. Sometimes they're investing for their own limited partners, and their job is to make as much money as they can for the people who've invested in them. So there's there's no good guy and bad guy per se, except every time the little guy gets treated poorly. It's unfortunate. Yeah. And I think the other thing to keep in mind, a lot of times that's happening because the folks taking the investment said, I want a very high valuation. Right. Right. And so if you say, and this is where I think you're so right about the common shareholders who are usually the employees, sometimes the founders too, though they get, they can get hurt by that as well. They start believing these valuations because someone else got that multiple or they send down the street and they want that high valuation and they think they're actually getting richer. They're not actually getting richer. They're paper, you know, numbers. I mean, if anything, they're richer. increasing their liquidity. But they're preference. actually increasing their liquidity. <laughs> that's exactly right. And for folks who don't know liquidity yeah. preference. So yeah. traditionally when you're raising money uh, as a private uh, venture backed company in almost every case, the amount of money you raise that has to get returned to the investors before founders and employees make anything. Now th that's in a acquisition of the company, not in an IPO. And so what was really interesting about these ratchets is they were a way, you know, so traditionally management teams were incentivized to go public, not sell the company because then they, that would wash away this liquidity preference that the investors had. Yeah. Ratchets were a way to kind of bring that into IPOs as well. Uh, which yeah. is really interesting. Yeah, you tell me the value, I'll tell you the terms. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so this is a good one from the audience here, um, uh, and, and relevant to everybody on the panel. Um, when, when you're planning a media strategy for an IPO, um, there's kind of two aspects of communications. There's external communications, of course, uh, to investors, to the press, uh, to the street, to analysts. Um, then there's internal communications to employees. How do you balance those uh, because um, while obviously you want to have one unified message, which is this is a great company, um, you want a lot of excitement uh, on the external side, but maybe some more sobriety and on the internal side. Uh, what's, what's the balance of those two? Can I do the quick external and You're then in. over to you for internal? The quick external is you are so restricted in what you can do. <laughs> yeah. that you can't do very much at all. You've got to be very, very careful because it, it's a little bit tricky because if you are promoting your stock, or it's, it's sort of known as gun jumping or hyping the stock, and the SEC can smack you on the wrist as they did to Salesforce.com, for instance, when it went public and said, you are making too much noise and you are hyping this deal, so zip it and put your thing back six months. So you've got to be very careful. And the hardest part about that is the SEC will sometimes slap you on the hands, and sometimes they won't. Uber was out there yeah. broadcasting left, right, and center, and nobody said a word. So, But the more interesting part is how you deal with it internally. Yeah, and I would just say the, way, the best way I always articulate the external size, if you look at the prospectus, the S1 that you file, it's about this much information is called, here's our strategy and our business, what we're doing. And the risks section is this <laughs> long. And, and people come up with risks that you could not even imagine. They become actually useless documents. <laughs> so I have a question, I've always had a question about this. Yeah. Who comes up with all the risks? So what, they take, what you do is you look at the last IPO. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of creativity. You take a look at their list. And then you look at, go, give me the last 20 IPOs. You look at all their lists. You add them all in. And then you spend, like the lawyer spent about an hour and a half sitting around going, what else could happen? <laughs> yeah. So that's how you come up with the risk uh, list. And that's why it's, it's very focused on conservative, conservative. But in terms of the employee side, and I don't think it's probably very different about when you're actually doing a private equity thing, you have the same kind of communications. And I think that you try to have a balance, right? You want to tell people this is exciting. Again, in my situation, as you know, you talked about the idea that People are all saying, I want an IPO, I want an IPO. I joined and there were quite a few people who had been promised at DocuSign an IPO for a few years. So there was a lot of enthusiasm uh, to have it happen. Uh, probably, I guess I'd say some pressure too to try to do it in a post-haste way. Um, but had, there been, uh, had there been secondary sales uh, at DocuSign? There had been, yeah. There's, most companies at that scale, uh, DocuSign raised over $500 million. So there had been a lot of investment and there was a reasonably free 
uh, market. But that only really affects a small number of insiders. Usually people that are, have small, your other, most of your employees have small numbers of shares. They don't really have a wherewithal to find so, that for most of them. So they hadn't had that uh, benefit. It was mostly former employees who had big shares that ended up taking advantage of that option. But I think you want to get people excited about that, but you also want to you know, manage expectations so you don't have people that are disappointed. So I actually try to take a very low-key approach to the internal communications and saying, we're going to be the exact same company the day before, and we're going to be the day after. And in fact, a lot of people talk about these big IPO parties that used to happen a lot, like in the 90, late 90s. We had some pretty good IPO parties <laughs> in the late 90s. And then we realized that, that wasn't probably the best uh, use of those funds. Lunch. Well, I, but, I, have to say, I have to say that. So I worked at a company called Organic back oh, in the day. Yeah. So we went public and date myself here, 2000 maybe. Um, and it was a, a cautionary tale for this very question, which was, uh, we hyped it up. Everybody was so excited. You know, it was just crazy, crazy, and it was all wonderful. And we went public, and then they got delisted in like two seconds. Oh no! And it was a disaster, right? Yeah. So um, it was uh, really tough for an employee morale perspective, right? And to bridge that gap culturally, it was just very damaging for the company. And you know, we had to dig ourselves back out of that. What a whipsaw! What we did at, at DocuSign is one of our values is DocuSign impact, was giving back to our communities. And so we said we were going to do our party in what we call Doc. DocuSign style. So the day of the IPO, we had all of our employees go into our communities across all the offices and do support nonprofits. And, and everyone was sort of like, oh, this is what our values are. This is what makes sense. Um, I'm sure a little champagne was consumed somewhere during the day somewhere. Um, you know, I was in New York, but it was, it was a great way to do it. And I made people realize that our values are going to be more enduring than a, a big party. What? Oh, I was just going to jump down a little bit of a rabbit hole because it's like my yeah, favorite part please. of internal communications. Did you have to do a reverse split? No. Okay. Well, many companies... But most do. And we did it responsibly. Not that's very cool. You didn't have to... So, so, right, you get to the point with your bankers where you decide what the company's going to... Theoretically, where you're going to go out, we're going to be worth X billion dollars or whatever it is. How many shares do we have? Divide that no, number yeah. by the number of shares and you come up with, okay, the stock should go out at... X dollars a share. $20. It's always, why is it always $20? And that's the answer, exactly. Because sometimes the math comes out and it says you're going to be worth $4 a share or $5 a share. And nobody wants to go out with a stock price of four or five. So you reduce, hey, simple math, you reduce the number of shares. You do a reverse split. You used to have, you know, two shares and now you have one. And there's nothing more in a cruel way, entertaining than watching engineers Very cruel. <laughs> who are mathematicians try to cope with the fact that they used to have a hundred shares worth a dollar each, and now they have 50 shares worth $2 each, and who's cheating them? Yeah. <laughs> and people totally lose their minds. You literally have to stand up in front of the room and say, this is a $10 bill. <laughs> These are two $5 bills. You used to have two $5 bills. Now you have a 10. Everyone who's very angry and thinks they're... Anyway, it's... But <laughs> it's just so Did that happen very, at Google? It happens... No, it didn't happen at Google because we were... Uh, but it happens... I could imagine knowing the, the Google time. culture that there would have been like a long academic debate about every that. It happens all yeah. the time. But <laughs> the reason it happens is because people know how many shares yes. they had, and then they all think, since they notice that all stocks seem, for whatever reason, to go out about 20 I mean, not all, but there's a pretty tight range around there. Yes. Um, and so they all assume their 100,000 shares are going to be worth $2 million at $20. And then when they say, yeah, we're going out at $20, but you only have half as many <laughs> shares, they feel they've been robbed. Yes, a lot of <laughs> education. Great. A lot of education, yeah. exactly right. Well, well um, so the communication uh, question brings me back to, to my list of questions here, um, uh, mostly for Dan, but, but for the whole panel. Um, what is the process, you know, the quarterly earnings call is the hallmark of being a public company. What's the process like to prepare for one of those, uh, especially, you know, for folks who might be on a management team of a company that might go public one day, like that's a, that's a whole amount of overhead that, you know, I like to think that I'm tough on my portfolio CEOs in board meetings every quarter, but uh, it's not quite the same level of scrutiny. How, how early before the call do you start preparing? So I have to tell the truth or not? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it depends. And it depends a lot on your company and the situation in the quarter. If you don't have anything that's highly unusual, either good or bad, um, and you have a really good CFO, as I do now, a very experienced CFO in Mike Sheridan. I mean, people, they're taught, there's meetings, and I sometimes come into a meeting and they'll ask, oh, should we announce this partnership or that? I don't really do very much. 
And then someone gives me a script draft, usually the calls are Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. I usually get it for the weekend and I look at it and I look, well, it seems pretty good. I change words for like the way I speak. Um, and then that's it. There's not a lot of preparation. At response, that speaks to the importance of having a really good team exactly in right. place to be ready At response, for this. I had a yeah. first time public CFO. I'd taken companies public he never had. And although Chris was a good CFO, he was very <laughs> nervous. And so I ended up doing a lot of the writing of the scripts. Uh, but now um, I, do, I do very little of it. Um, many companies actually record in advance that's becoming much more common. The the they do Q and A afterwards, but some they might do it like three or four days beforehand. They just do record it and then they just play it when when the thing starts and then when it's over they do Q and A. So I don't I don't find it to be a particularly difficult thing. There are situations where you can have either way, and you know I'll give you an example. The last two quarters that were tricky for us. Last quarter we had one of our metrics, which is called billings, which was in our range, right in the middle of the range we said we were going to have. But people expect companies that are trading it. 10, 11 times revenue, which is still crazy to think of yeah. how we trade now. It's about a billion in revenue and we're worth about $11 billion. They expect you to beat all those numbers and then raise the goal. And so we kind of came with one metric in the middle and our stock dramatically went down. So we had to, to plan how we wanted to talk about it. This quarter, last week, we announced and that number that was a little bit low, it was 27% growth, was 47%. And the reality is it's a number that moves around a lot and you don't really want people to overreact the other way because volatility, for your, back to your employee point, it's not really good for employees to have the stock going because then they start looking at the stock every day as opposed to focus on delivering value to customers. So you then have to manage that. And we start, we, we, you call it downsell. You go, I know that number looked really good. But there were a whole bunch of one-off things that happened. They're never, we pulled forward some, I mean, you, you try to come up with whatever you can to sort of get people not too excited about it. So there's some of those things, but unless you have something like that, it's pretty straightforward. So I mean, like, it's like with most things, lender, lender calls, your board meetings, a, a yep. conversation with your principal, your boss, whatever. If things are going well, it's going to be easy. <laughs> things not going well, it's going to be hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, exactly right. What, um, so, so let's talk about, uh, the fact, not DocuSign specifically, because we can't really talk about that, or I assume you can't talk about that, but the but fact that can. SaaS companies, we can, that um, SaaS companies are trading, you know, on average at 10x plus revenue right now. Uh, so so for folks in the audience who maybe, maybe aren't familiar with these terms, so uh, a multiple of earnings is typically how companies would trade in the past. People talk about a PE ratio, price to earnings ratio. Uh, that was the stock price divided by the earnings per share, uh, net income earnings that the company would make. We're well past those days now. We're tra trading on revenue, top line, multiples of revenue. Um, 10x revenue is historically an incredibly high valuation. And now that's the norm expectation for a SaaS company. Maybe please, what, uh, for investors, in the IPO market, public investors, what has made them so bullish on this current generation of SaaS companies? Two answers. Remember, it's always a continuum. Am I afraid or do I go for reward? Is it risk reward? So we've been in this booming economy that makes everyone feel more comfortable. Um, but I think the other, uh, the other big issue is when I'm an institutional investor, I'm T. Rowe Price, your Fidelity, your Wellington. My goal isn't to return 8 or 9%. It's to beat you. And we all own DocuSign and Apple and Facebook and Procter and Gamble, whatever it is. So if I'm going to beat you, I've got to own something you don't own. Yeah. And I've got to have enough of it in my portfolio to make just this much difference at the end of the year. So that incents people to be a little braver on the things that are just new to the market, right? New issues are inherently riskier. It used to be why they sold at a, at a discount. And they still are initially marketed, not direct listings, but other ones, at a discount because they're riskier. Um, but, but there's a huge incentive. And to your point about SaaS companies, it's because so much of that revenue is reliable. It's not like you're selling clothes. It's not like you're selling tractors that you could sell a lot one quarter and none the next quarter. This is these are subscription businesses, yeah. and so they're, the more of your revenue comes from subscription, the more comfortable I am that you're not going to whiff. Yeah. And if you're not going to whiff, I'll pay you more for non-whiffage. Yeah. Well, subscription is. The, I mean, this is the golden chalice or whatever that everybody's <laughs> looking for, right? It's all about subscriptions. So, I mean, even the, the company I'm working for, Genesis, we're, we're a premise-based software company moving to the cloud, and it's all about the, the cloud is really the emphasis because that's where you get the annual recognized revenue. It's much 
better than uh, over the long term. I mean, you still have great value from your premise customers, but you can have it um, be a lot more reliable from a subscription perspective. Um, and growth would be the only other factor. I, I think that while the subscription, the sort of the guarantee, the comfort of that as being more stable, the reason multiples are very high in certain parts of the business is people want the growth. And when Lisa was saying, I want to outperform someone, they think they're going to get there by buying growth. And software right now is one of the areas where there's just very high growth companies. So we had 41% growth last quarter in our revenue. That's yeah. Kind of crazy, yeah. So that's why you get these high valuations. And the markets are huge for, for this. It's all in the cloud. So it's anywhere, anybody, any yeah. any place. I think what's yeah. interesting is even that your business, the private equity investors until very recently, yeah. they never looked at revenue multiples, right? They always looked at the EBITDA or some measure of profitability. And one of the hard parts for a lot of the firms now, they're, they're trying to buy these companies, but they're competing with people saying, I'm going to go public. Yeah. If I'm going to go public, I'm going to get this huge multiple. So both corporate takeovers and private equity firms, they're starting now. They still have to go back in, in their own little decks when they go back to their firms. I worked with a private equity firm for a while, Advent. They have to still do it on a price to earnings or a price to EBITDA, but they can't actually compete unless they pay at the high uh, value of yeah. revenue. So it's the new. And what's interesting, they, you know, there are a few um, sort of new breed of tech private equity firms in the Vistas and the Toma Bravos and the like that are starting to they're just doing completely right. they, They've given up the premise that yeah. any <laughs> profitability metric ever coming. They're buying and they're winning the deal. Yeah, and they're, they're using debt to buy these companies too, which is, which is incredible. Um, it works until it doesn't. <laughs> well, so this is a good uh, segue. I have I've two more kind of... Um, general topics that, that I want to cover before we, we go fully into audience questions. Um, let's talk about acquisitions. So the two directions I want to talk about here are one, um, you know, one of the reasons that's always stated as a, as a rationale for going public is you now have a liquid public stock that you can use as a currency to make acquisitions. Tracy, you guys have made 16 acquisitions since being taken private. So that doesn't necessarily <laughs> preclude you have to uh, go public. private companies from doing it. Um, but, uh, how, um, uh, maybe Dan, like how with the two public companies that you've you know, been CEO of, uh, how does that change the game when you go into the, uh, when you have that public company stock, when you're talking to potential acquirees? Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is if you want to do large deals, it's oftentimes really valuable to be able to use the equity. Yeah. Um, I've done as a response to this, we did seven acquisitions, uh, I've only done the one acquisition since uh, DocuSign bought a company called Spring CM last year. Um, and I try to do them all with cash. I actually think my equity is really valuable. And I believe in my business that it's going to be worth more in the future. So I consider my equity dear and I'd rather use cash if I have enough cash to do it. I haven't done sort of blockbuster, like, you know, mergers of equals where you could never have that much cash sitting on your balance sheet. Um, but I actually think cash is great. The only time you run into a challenge or I've run into a challenge where cash isn't as good as equity, although a private company can still use equity. Yeah. It's just the only problem with using equity as a private company. Now you're trying to figure out two things. You have to figure out what your company's worth and we're going to use our shares and no one knows exactly what they're worth with a public company. You can just look, pull up the paper or does anyone even look at the paper? I can't believe they said that. <laughs> I know what Pull you meant. You know, Pull up your they used to be yeah. this thing where they put the stock prices in newspapers. I know yeah. you people aren't going to understand that, but it's crazy. Uh, but now you have to do it online, of course. Uh, and you can see the value. And if you have two private companies, then you have to kind of so, argue about two different prices. So it's a little more complicated. I was but, on the board of uh, Rover.com for many years, and we merged with Dog Vacay. Yeah. And it was a private-to-private -private merger. And it took, <laughs> I would say it took 18 months yeah. of negotiation just to come up with a relative valuation. Of the company. We both numbers. agreed we wanted to merge. Yeah. It was just like, you know, yeah. the back and forth of, of, you know, we couldn't pull out our iPhones and look at the stock price. <laughs> Right. The one thing I would say that sometimes comes up uh, reasonably frequently is if you're someone that's selling the company doesn't want to have the tax implications of getting cash, they would prefer you use your stock because just the way our tax laws work, it's sort of complicated. But as long as a reasonable portion is done in stock, then they don't have to take the, they can just keep their investment going and they don't have to cash out and pay uh, pay taxes on it. So. That sometimes that happens and you kind of having the stock is really an advantage because that particular seller doesn't want to do it. But other than that, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of times people say they want stock, but the reality is cash is king to a lot of <laughs> yeah. people. So I think cash can be a, a very strong yeah. incentive. So, I mean, what your experience Tracy, yeah, for you, uh, in the acquisitions that Genesis has done, um, 
how have you thought about your ability to access capital on the cash side or use equity and get uh, relative to the size of transactions that you can do? Well, you know, honestly, I am the chief people officer. I think a lot more about the employee experience around the acquisitions. <laughs> That's for yeah. you guys and the <laughs> private equity firms, the bankers to worry more about that. To be honest, I spend, um, it is almost 100% my job to be that voice for the people because when you're doing acquisitions, you've got your board and your management team and your bankers and you've got all these people all thinking about the transaction and the deal and you know, it's all important. I mean, that's obviously, it's a deal, but um, it's not going to be a successful deal if you don't think about the people. And so I actually spend much more of my time thinking about that. Obviously, a big lever is around compensation. So we acquired a public company um, and the employees were a big one. And employees were used to getting uh, RSUs and stock and it was liquid. And then bringing that into the private equity fold was a little bit of a transition for them, right? So lots of communication, lots of education, some bridging programs, things like that to really bring people along until, um, you know, you then override all of that with hopefully a great employee experience, great work, exciting things to do and great places to take the company. So then the other side of acquisitions uh, as a public company is Sometimes public companies get acquired themselves, uh, as you mentioned, and, uh, and Daniel, last company at Responsus. Um, how much, and, and then of course, also in the SaaS world, uh, Qualtrics was on file famously to go public uh, and then got acquired at the last minute in the largest uh, SaaS acquisition in history. Um, how much do you guys maybe, maybe leave this a question for you since Dan probably can't speculate too much. Uh, how much I can you... about Qualtrics. I was with Ryan and Bill the week before they did the deal. So I'm plenty of speculation on that. Oh, okay, great, great. Well, so, so for everyone then, um, does being public or being in the process of going public, uh, what is it about that, that can increase the attractiveness of, of the company to a potential acquirer so much? There's the belief that it's cheaper to buy it today than it's going to be tomorrow <laughs> is really what it boils down to. Um, and I don't remember the multiples for the, Quatri the Qualtrics acquisition offhand, but if they were trading at what some of today's public SaaS companies are trading at, I wonder if there would be the valuation would be even 16 higher. 16 times trailing and, and just over 20 times future. So they, they wow. Brian got a very high valuation. Wow. Yeah, same with Adaptive Insights that was bought out uh, basically 36 hours before they were going to ring the bell, which was really tough from an employee point of view because employees get so excited Same. about it. Yeah. They're like, yeah, well, you're going to get cash, which is nice, but you're not going to get to be a public company. And it was actually a real... Right. Yeah. A lot of times companies, I think, go that route hoping to get bought. They don't yeah. really want the volatility and the lack of certainty that an IPO brings. And you put it all out there and somebody gets excited about you and buys you. It happens, I think, quite a lot. Yeah. And sometimes, to your point at the very beginning of this conversation about when you file your information publicly, sometimes you get purchased before you make that information mm. public because yeah. the acquirer doesn't want anyone to know what your numbers really look like. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So my last topic that also relates to a lot of the questions we've been getting is... Um, what is the impact of this current round of IPOs going to be on the Bay Area as a whole? Especially, you know, you all have lived through multiple rounds of liquidity in Silicon Valley and, and seen what's happened. Um, what do you think is going to play out this time in terms of, you know, I'll leave the question open to start. I think, prices, I think we're going to you... lose the really affordable housing we have here in the Bay Area. I think it's going to be terrible. The existing affordable yeah. housing. Is there any? They're going to start, prices are going to go up. It's not going to be so cheap to live here anymore. So I'm really concerned about uh, the degradation we're going to have. Yeah. But seriously, like, is it just going to get worse? Like, um, uh, you know, there is now, for the first time again in a long time, a lot of liquidity, significant liquidity in the system in Silicon Valley. Uh, is there any solution to housing prices? One of the things that, well... Not going there, but um, <laughs> one of the one of the things that is a little different this time is there have been a lot of secondary sales. Yeah. Whereas back in the day, employees couldn't sell until the IPO. Now there are plenty of employees who have at least made some. Money. And certainly, every you know mega unicorn out there, employees have been able to cash out uh, over the years. So, but you know, markets are cyclical; things go up, and then they go the other way. So. Um, I don't believe trees always grow to the sky or whatever the phrase is. And I think, I think the bigger question that it has nothing to do with IPOs, but you look at all the housing being built and wonder, oh my God, what's it? It's going to be like four hours to get from Palo Alto to San Francisco. I mean, but 
I think there's a, well, I think there's a couple of risks. Um, you know, one is uh, this crisis could start driving companies out of the area, yeah. right? Mm. People... Um, you already have we already are many kind of, employees remote. Yeah. Right. We're already kind of doing that, right? Um, just because it's uh, more practical uh, to hire people. And it, because of all of these great cloud tools like DocuSign, everybody doesn't have to sit in the same office together anymore. Mm. We have Zoom and we have... Uh, WebEx, Slack you know, and, all Slack, yeah. whatever. We have all these different kinds of tools to communicate and gather and be a community and just be sitting anywhere we want. So I think that's one thing, right? As housing gets so expensive, our employees want to get out of the Bay Area because they can't afford it and their their lifestyle can be so much better elsewhere. And then they can generally command the same salaries because people are just paying for the talent anywhere. That geographic differential in compensation is kind of going away. Um, it's not what it used to be 10 years ago. It's uh, the salary differentials by location are just not what they were. And then I think companies have to contribute to the homeless problem. Like it's a problem. You see it every day on the street. We have to do something as a community and there has to be some responsibility there for companies to get involved. That's, I think it's wonderful on the day you rang the bell that you had your employees go do service in the community. Impact, yeah. um, but but to the point of remote, I mean, at the early stage end of uh, you know the venture ecosystem, we invested in seed stage companies at, at at Wave. I don't think there's a single company in our portfolio that doesn't have, and these are companies sometimes as small as like three four people that doesn't have at least one or multiple remote workers. It's just normal that, you know, wherever you're based, uh, you're going to tap talent markets around the world, even at tiny stages. And that is such a, such a huge change. I mean, even three or four years ago, uh, as an investor in early stage companies, that was like anathema as a board member. If you told me you were going to hire remote employees, I'd say you're crazy. You got to wait until your Genesis or DocuSign stage to, to be able to do that. And, and now it's just completely commonplace. Um, well, the differentiator for talent is flexibility, right? And for all ages, you've got five generations uh, we're in the workforce, right? And everybody wants flexibility for different reasons, but everybody wants it. Yeah. This will, and technology enables you to do that. I would say the forecast of the demise of the Bay Area as an attractive place to start and build companies are going to continue to be wrong. Yeah, so I do. I totally do agree with that. that. <laughs> There's happen, a reason but... why Wave is in San Francisco. Yeah, but, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but I think what's really interesting, and, and so that brings up the... Um, uh, again, self-interestedly for, for me as a venture capitalist, uh, the other side of this equation is, um, will this liquidity and wave of liquidity encourage more people and enable more people who have been employees at these companies for a long time to go become founders themselves? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we're already starting to see it, you know, by our count at wave, there've been 18 companies that have, well, 18 companies started at Airbnb in the last out of Airbnb in the last two years. It doesn't really matter because they're, they're not public yet, but, um, Uber has been an incredible generation of, of entrepreneurial talent. There have been close to 40 companies started by Uber alums just in the last three years alone. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's really exciting to see as these liquidity events happen and enable employees to have a little bit of a nest egg, be able to take risk and go and, and found companies of their own. It's going to drive, exactly, Dan, to your point, a whole new cycle that's yeah. going to kick off here in Silicon Valley. And the other thing I'll disagree with you on is that's starting to happen, right? <laughs> Silicon Valley happened because Fairchild was here. And yes, Fairchild of course, of course. Everything, and then Intel begat everything. The and that is, is yes. the cycle. Is but the, what's yeah. interesting is like it. Um, I certainly wouldn't say it's paused. There's been plenty of entrepreneurial activity, but I think there have been a lot of people yeah. within these companies that have stayed put because they're waiting for the IPO. Because yeah. they're waiting, I think if not for the money, then for just the experience of having done that. So, um, we are running uh, fairly short on time. Um, so I want to make sure that we end with the traditional uh, Commonwealth Club inform question, uh, which is we have exactly three minutes left for each of our panelists. What is your 60 second idea to change the world? Uh, who wants to go first? Go well, maybe this way. Sure, I'll go first. <laughs> I get to be first. Um, okay, so I call it the front porch rule. Uh, everyone would be required to Hang out on the front porch for an hour a day, preferably after work. No devices. Just hang out, weather permitting, with your neighbors and build your community. Um, I think building your community at a local level contributes to tolerance and understanding. And that's what we need in this whole world. And if we start small, I think that that could grow. All right. 
Dan? I, I liked my idea better before I heard your idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Boy, you are It doesn't America. have to be serious. That, one, that was good. You get the crown. <laughs> so uh, I'm involved with an organization called Pledge 1%. Uh, in fact, we just had at the Cloud 100 uh, dinner a couple nights ago uh, a big focus to try to increase this. And some companies are doing this pledge, and we call it Pledge 1%, where you say your company pledges to have 1% of the time of your people available. So like three days uh, a year, tell people that they can still get paid, but work in the community and with nonprofit organizations or however they best see fit to do that. 1% um, of your profits, which people define in slightly different ways, but the idea is that you'll take some of that treasure that you guys are building and give that away. 1% uh, of your products. So we say, as an example of DocuSign, we have 7,000 nonprofits that we let uh, use our uh, our soft software, the vast majority of them for free. If they get really big, we do start to charge them, uh, but at good discounts. And then lastly, and this is really big because it's your point about life after liquidity, is 1% of the equity uh, in the business. So when we went public uh, at DocuSide, our last private round was about a $3 billion valuation. So we committed um, $30 million, or 1% of that equity, to the DocuSign Impact Foundation. And I think if every company would put 1% of their equity uh, into a foundation to be invested in their communities for uh, supporting nonprofits in their community, I think it could be transformational. Uh, and we would maybe get a little bit away of businesses sort of being the antithesis of community. So thinking about the homeless problem you brought up as an example, but rather saying, no, the businesses being successful is actually good for our communities. Um, so we're not really kind of going against each other. We're working together. So that's my. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Both of yours. Okay. And now we're going from the big to the ex banker, uh, much more. I don't know what the exact word is pedestrian. I'd get rid of the electoral college. <laughs> As uh, all, presumably all or most of us citizens of California, we can we very much support, <laughs> support that. that. Yeah, <laughs> want uh, my vote to count. That, <laughs> that's great. Um, that's all the time we have for the panel. Um, hopefully, folks can stick around for a little while after. But thank you again to Tracy, Dan, and Lise for joining us. This has been great. Thank and you. And to our moderator. Who <laughs> awesome yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you to. Uh, to you all and, and to First Republic Bank for sponsoring, and um, we will see you again soon.